You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group. www.americantheatre.org Good afternoon and welcome to Off Script, American Theatre's podcast on all things theatrical. It's November 17th, 2023. I'm Rob Weiner-Kent, Editor-in-Chief of American Theatre Magazine. My pronouns are he, him. I'm coming to you from the lands of Lenape. Actually, I'm in Queens, but my backdrop is Playwrights Horizons, and you'll find out why in a second. And I'm here with... I'm Gerald Pierce. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. I'm the Chicago editor for American Theater, and I am coming to you from the traditional homelands of the Council of Three Fires, the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi nations. Uh, many other nations called this their traditional homeland, and today we colloquially refer to it as Chicago. So the reason the Playwrights Horizons backdrop is there is that we're really excited today to have an interview with David Ajmi, playwright of Stereophonic, kind of the play of the moment right now. It's, it's a Playwrights Horizons through December 17th. I don't know if you can get a ticket to it if you're New York, in New York. If you can, do. Uh, we'll talk a lot more about that, but uh, we're going to get to him. Uh, first, Jay and I, JR and I will talk about some of the things we've been writing, and then we're really excited to talk uh, uh, our first guest is Lauren Van Hemert, who is the founder of the arts journalist in the Raleigh-Durham area, North Carolina, the founder of Beltline to Broadway, a nonprofit online magazine, which we know something about. So we'll talk to her and then we'll get to David Ajami for a deep dive into the world of recording studios in the 1970s. Um, uh, I want to just re remind us all that uh, we are now back in print. We're online. We're obviously online right now with with our with this live chat and podcast but we also have a quarterly print magazine that just launched uh please uh the only way to get it is to go to americantheater.org slash join if you happen to be in new york you can get find a single copy at the drama bookshop in chicago at the understudy and in la at skylight books that's the only place you can buy a single copy for the moment we're going to figure out single copies online too but for now we'd love to have you subscribe keep up with our magazine Keep up with, with the coverage we're doing. Read original play scripts, which are only in the magazine. This this Our first play script is Dark Disabled Stories by Ryan J. Haddad. Um, I can announce on this podcast that our next play script in our January issue will be Jaja's African Hair Braiding by Jocelyn Beale. We're really excited. We just found out that'll be our next play script. So if that's not reason enough to subscribe, I don't know what is. Uh, so what have we been writing about online, JR? Uh, actually, uh, I think I'm supposed to start this one. So I will start this one. So I've been talking already. Um, I will, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the coverage that we that we put in the print magazine end up ends up online. So one thing that we we covered in our print magazine is uh, Keen Company uh, staged uh, the year of, of magical thinking, the Joan Didion play in uh, in people's homes and community centers with Kathleen Chalfant just doing the play as a sort of parlor piece alive in a little room for folks. Uh, the King Company did that last fall um, and it was a big success. And now they're doing it in the New, New Haven neighborhood in conjunction with Long Wharf. So we had a piece by Lise Gardner in the print magazine and also online about, about that. Uh, so check that out. Um, a good friend of mine, Mark Armstrong is the producer, artist director of 24 Hour Plays annual crazy thing it, it's actually a brand they do it in a lot of different ways but they do it uh, a, a night on broadway where they have a bunch of name actors and writers 
get together and make a play in 24 hours uh, or make a bunch of short plays in 24 hours. It's, it's crazy. It's fun. It's, it's kind of like a theater camp, uh, you know, boot camp overnight. Um, they honored Warren Light, the, the playwright of Sidemen and also uh, a, a bunch of TV. I think it's SVU. It's one of the show he's best known for. Um, and they honored him and he, he gave a, just a, a moving sort of funny speech uh, and very, uh, uh, about the 24 hour plays about his work in the theater about what it means to be back in the theater and why you know his his heart will always be there as a lot of people you hear who work in other media they'll say their hearts really in theater and it's 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 a it's a wonderful speech we just we published basically the the text of the speech uh super excited to work with kyle turner wonderful writer wonderful critic uh who who's sort of been circling and trying to find the right pitch uh to have him write for us and the perfect pitch he's he's very up on sondheim and on movies so uh we had him write about here we are which is the 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 new and final sondheim musical uh based on two boonwell films and it's a it's a lot about that musical but it's also just about how cinema uh infused and inspired so much of sondheim's work throughout his whole career and i knew i knew a lot about this i know a lot about sondheim but i learned a lot from his piece and also from his perspective on on that Finally, I'll just mention, well, actually, I can't finally, there's a couple more things. Uh, check out Carrie Dodd's Fitch's uh, Q&A with Joseph, Joseph Maria uh, Miro, a, a Catalan Spanish playwright who's in town in residency with Play Company. That's a fascinating conversation, especially about translation. Um, just interesting to talk to a playwright about how he already thinks about translation as he's writing, almost like a, a novelist might think about the, the screen adaptation. It's kind of, it's, it's interesting. Um, two last things, of deep dives on a couple company projects, ensemble company projects. One is Joey Sims spent some time with Irondale, this Brooklyn company, uh, in April. And then more recently, there's this sort of, they investigated the 20th century of American playwriting, not an ambitious project or anything, um, and turned it into two kind of anthology plays. That's a fascinating piece. And then we published part one of an epic three-part series by Todd London about Larissa Fast Tours and Cornerstone going to her homeland uh, in the Dakotas, um, where she partly grew up as a native uh, uh, native young woman. And she's become, as, as you might know, a sort of a, a, a star, a, a famous, the first native woman playwright to have a play on Broadway with Thanksgiving play. But this, while all that was happening for the past couple of years, she's been pulling this piece together. If you know anything about Cornerstone, you know they're a hugely important company and they also work on such a granular level and a local level that their, their work does not get covered by, by the media very much. And it doesn't get much attention uh, outside of the communities it works for because that's what they're doing. So it's an amazing process piece and it's going to be two more installments coming. Definitely check out the first one. That's a lot, JR. Sorry. Uh, handing over to you uh, some of the other things we've written about. Oh, all those are great. Uh, time well spent. Um, I just want to <laughs> point out a few a few pieces that actually have some great Chicago ties. Uh, first, I want to point out uh, Gabriella, our associate Chicago editor, wrote about photographer Joe Mazza, who is, if you check the Facebook comments when that piece came out, regularly you'll see the the words Chicago legend associated with his his name. He is a photographer whose name you will see attached to production photos and 
and um, behind the scenes photos and gala photos all over the city. Uh, and Gabriella does a really great job showcasing how he's able to bring joy out of the folks he takes photos of, as well as what turned him into the person and photographer he is today. And then uh, the other pieces I want to talk about real quick are the first three pieces that are part of a six-part essay series that was curated and edited by Regina Victor, the editor of Rescripted, and critic Jose Solis. And that's part of TCG's Thrive Uplifting Theaters of Color efforts, uh, which provides grants and coverage, as we're doing here, of theaters of color across the country. Uh, the first is from Chicago-based writer Maddie Doppelt, who took a look at the inventive work happening at National Black Theater in Harlem, Teatro Vista here in Chicago, and Hattie Lou Theater in Memphis. And uh, the second piece then would be from Chicago-based writer as well, Tina L. Gamal, who wrote about the work institutions like Silk Road, Sil excuse me, Silk Road Rising here in Chicago, Pangea World Theater and Penumbra Theater in the Twin Cities, and what they're doing with the money that funders are able to give them and and talk a bit about why funders should be putting their trust in these theaters of color and these people of color led theaters. Uh, and then the final one is from Sitlali Pizarro, who is one of our three journalists who are part of this year's writing, Rising Leaders of Color cohort. Uh, and she wrote about uh, Tas Tasneem uh, Mandivwala and Wufa Balal, uh, and what can be learned when a painter and a performance artist come to work with theaters and the the beautiful art they can create. I'll toss it back. Yeah, those pieces are those pieces are super exciting, and there's going to be three more. Mm -hmm. Look for those. A couple more by our rising leaders of color writers. Um, I'll just briefly note uh, a few memoriams that we wrote. Uh, one was to Shirley Jo Finney, a wonderful actress, uh, best known as an actress who built a great career as a director on, in L LA theater. I, I interviewed her a few times when I was out there, saw her work. She worked a lot at the Fountain Theater. So the Fountain Theater Arts Director, Stephen Sachs, wrote a beautiful tribute to her. Uh, and then every once in a while, uh, someone passes who left behind an unimaginably huge legacy. And one of Robert Burstein was one of those, uh, founder of Yale Rep, and American Repertory Theater, um, and a major critic, and a bit of a gadfly, and I didn't always see eye to eye with his point of view, but he had an inarguably huge impact on not only the theater, but as an educator as well. Many generations of critics and theater makers um, owe their career, or their the way of thinking, or or they owe the, the way they argue against that point of view to Robert Brewstein's legacy. So um, we, we had a couple of pieces uh, Rocco Landisman, who was his first American theater byline, uh, wrote a beautiful tribute. Um, he was a student, actually, I didn't realize, but also obviously a producer, owner of Drew Jamson, a huge figure. Um, and uh, it was great to have that in the magazine. Um, we are now going to turn to our correspondent in uh, Raleigh Durham, Lauren Van Hemmert. I think she's in the green room. She can come in. There you are, Lauren. How are you doing? Oh, fine. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, so would you just start by asking a little bit about you and how you got, how you started doing arts journalism? Well, um, 150 years ago, I went to journalism <laughs> school and it didn't occur to me that I could be an arts journalist. I was 
um, you know, studying the the hard news <laughs> right. coverage that that we all kind of get thrown into in journalism school, at least when I was going to school. Um, arts journalism wasn't really a, a subfield. And so um, I practiced as a journalist for a, a short time and then became a mom, um, stayed at home, took care of the kids. And when they got old enough, um, I was really looking for a place to really practice my craft. And Broadway World was hiring a regional um, editor here in Raleigh, Durham. And I thought theater and journalism, two of my favorite things. I think I could do that. And so I worked there for about a year and I was finding that I was having all these amazing conversations with theater makers all across the triangle that I really wanted to record and have other people hear because more than theater criticism, I'm, I'm really interested in the process of creating what goes on behind the scenes. And now I've really turned my interest to the, the business of theater. And so um, I really wanted to talk about those things with theater makers and Broadway World didn't really have a platform for that. And so I left Broadway World. I started a platform called RDU on Stage um, with a podcast. And during the pandemic, um, I started going live on Zoom just like this. And I thought I would do it like, you know, for two weeks because I just couldn't produce the podcast interviews fast enough. And so I was like, well, if I go live, then people can just watch it and I don't have to edit or produce anything. I just have people come join me on Zoom. And, um, and so that was happening during the pandemic and we did it every day, almost every day for two years, what I thought was gonna be a two week stint. And then we'd all go back to normal, ended up being two years of, um, regularly producing a show and talking to theater makers um, after George Floyd was murdered. We really um, focused our efforts on talking about racism in the theater and does it does it happen here? And, and how does how do we um, open up a conversation between theater producers and presenters and artists? Um, I'm very proud to say that for our coverage and our conversations around that, we created a series of conversations called the, um, <laughs> Torn Theater on Racial Negativity. Um, we earned the Raleigh Medal of Arts, which they don't typically give to journalists, um, but um, they awarded us. So I, we changed our focus. We became very much an advocacy group for the theaters, for the artists. Our coverage really started focusing on that and we became Beltline to Broadway because we were getting as many listeners across the East Coast as we were in Raleigh-Durham and no one knew what RD went. So instead of telling people on every broadcast, this is our airport code, um, we just became Beltline to Broadway. So, and, and a nonprofit because we were focusing on the advocacy piece a lot. So that's, that's our story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I I love that story as as somebody who kind of similarly was interested in just expanding coverage in Chicago when I first started. I'm curious like what suggestions or advice you have for writers out there in cities across the country who may want to see the coverage of theater 
and the arts in their city expand? How can they help that process? You know what really informed what I did? Um, it never occurred to me to have a podcast and it was really the suggestions of theaters because I went to my theater friends who I was talking to and I was covering them and I was seeing them at every opening night. And I was just asking that, you know, I did some informal market research, I guess, and just said, if you had to build a platform that really served this community, um, what would that look like? And a lot of them said it would have a podcast component. And so that's where the podcast came from. Um, I, I think really just listening and being in tune to the community and talking to the theaters to see what they need. I mean, obviously you don't want your platform to turn into just a big publicity machine for the theaters, but you also want to be a community. Uh, I, I see what we do as a service to our community. And so I think engaging the theaters in those discussions is a really good way to start. Speaking of the community, sorry, Rob, just one, one quick one. Yeah. Um, speaking of the community, I, I'm curious, like every city has its own kind of theater personality. So I'm curious how you define or explain the, the Raleigh-Durham personality for the theater folks there. It is so vibrant. So first of all, I think people would be amazed at the array of talent we have here. Um, what excites me about this area is it has really become a hub for new work. Uh, um, <clears throat> we have a very exciting North Carolina Playwrights Lab, which is developing new plays every year. Um, they, their new play festival, I guess you would call it, um, runs from I think July to August and then they produce two of the works that come out of that festival um, do get full productions and and there was a wonderful new piece called um, The Weight of Everything We Know that was brilliant um, that they produced last year so they are now um, in tandem to their play development lab. They are now developing a musical lab and I have to look, it, they just announced this. So breaking news, it's called the National Music Theater Foundry and they will be producing original new musicals once a year um, starting in 2025. So I think the amount of new work that's being created here is very exciting. Yeah, I would love to know just to, yeah, about the more, a little bit more about the community and your your perspective first just the lay of the land I think we were talking earlier about what are the major theaters in in the Raleigh Durham area that you're sort of your big ones and then you just highlighted that that, that new play uh mm -hmm. outfit uh, what are some smaller ones too but start with the big ones well um so so the triangle Raleigh Durham and it's actually covering Raleigh Durham and Chapel Hill we have mm -hmm. some big if you're a basketball fan you know we have big universities in this area and a lot of them have really vibrant theater programs as well um the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill has a professional theater in residence a uh, Lort theater called Playmakers which is under the um wonderful leadership of producing artistic director Vivian Benish, who 
if you're not in this area, but you're familiar with New York theater, just um, directed birthday candles on Broadway right. Right. Uh, last season or a couple seasons ago. So um, I would say Playmakers is really a, a force in this area um, housed at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Um, in Raleigh, we have Theater Raleigh that is run by our produce, by producing artistic director, Lauren Kennedy. Um, Lauren made her mark on Broadway as a leading lady and um, was born here and raised here, really developed her craft here. And so she came back here and she's running this amazing um, theater that has now become truly a destination. Um, it is, it's, it, it's a campus um, because one of the things, one of the issues we have here is we have a lot of theaters and a lot of artists. We don't have a lot of space. And so Lauren is really trying to create a space for other theater companies and artists to create art. So I really appreciate that. Um, Eric Woodall is the, he has a new title, but I don't remember what it was. So forgive me, Eric, I'm gonna go with your old title, um, Producing Artistic Director of North Carolina Theater, um, which is our big regional theater here in Raleigh. They um, produce a lot of um, musicals and well, more well-known titles. They also have a very vibrant conservatory. Um, Vernon Cole Theater is one of our smaller theaters, but. Oh, yeah also in the professional space and they do a lot of interesting um, a lot of interesting work that makes a statement. Um, you know, I think every theater has their own personality and theirs is definitely um, this uh, political contextualizing the world we're in type theater um, that I love. Whereas Playmakers, they they thrive on really classical pieces and, and looking at them through a contemporary lens and doing some new work. Um, Theater Raleigh, Charlie Brady, Lauren Kennedy's husband, he is the um, founder of Capital Area Theater Guild, which is the one that has started the uh, playwriting lab that I mentioned earlier and the musical theater foundry. So um, a lot of good work. It is. We, I was looking at Beltline. Obviously, that refers to an area, right? That's that's the Beltline. <laughs> and I use Beltline. Beltline is is kind of our our throughway that runs through Raleigh, um, okay. to, in and around downtown Raleigh. But I. We chose that name because it could be the Beltline in anywhere USA because we really wanted to open it up to. Okay. Things. Well, it's like the loop in Chicago. I suppose they refer to it just sort of a shorthand for a certain, it means <laughs> to both the area, but also it's just a reference to the local. But yeah. so what does the, the where does the Broadway piece come in? Do you also, uh, you sort of talk about, uh, you know, obviously Lauren Kennedy, you mentioned, uh, and Vivian Banesh. So these, some of these folks have, have, uh, Broadway credits, but how does that fit into your coverage? Um, you know, it's really interesting because a lot of Broadway stars um, come here to do work at these theaters and really to stretch their wings in areas where maybe they haven't. So for example, Julia Murney came and she directed a play a few years ago. She's coming back to 
direct the 1940s radio hour over at Theatre Raleigh. Um, Megan McGinnis um, and her husband, Adam Halpern, came and they performed in City of Angels at Theatre Raleigh. Um, so we get this really vibrant, Telly Leon came and, and directed um, also at Theatre Raleigh. And then Joy Woods, who's gonna be in The Notebook starting in February and who did such a brilliant job in Local Shop of Horrors. Um, she's starred in our North Carolina theater production of Green of Dream Girls. So we have um, a lot of these companies like North Carolina Theater and Theater Raleigh in particular, who really are committed to making the road between Raleigh and Broadway much shorter. <laughs> making that right. distance okay. much shorter and by bringing in these fabulous guest artists who end up spending a lot of time here um, and, and then wanting to come back and create more art. Whitney White, you mentioned Yaya's uh, mm. African Air. She was here a few years ago at Playmakers directing um, Charlie Yvonne Simpson's Jump. And, and so I was so thrilled to see her on Broadway um, directing this beautiful play. So I... You know, I, I think some of the theaters would say, you saw them here first, but sometimes right. you just see, see them here during. Um, they, they, mm -hmm. Carol Lindsay and her husband were just here doing Mary Poppins. So it, it's, that's where the Broadway comes in because it never fails that we turn around and we're interviewing some Broadway folks. Um, mm -hmm. Max Jernan, who just was in Parade is, coming in December to star in Elf, which is oh, an interesting cool. turn of events <laughs> for him. <laughs> so, um, but it's exciting because he's been here before doing Daddy Long Legs and now he's coming back and doing Elf. And, and so people, once they, once they come here and they see the vibrancy of the arts and the appreciation of the audiences, we love theater here in Raleigh. Um, and so I, I think it's that audience appreciation that keeps people coming back. Amy Spanger is coming to direct a production of Tick, Tick, Boom next season. I mean, there's a lot of exciting work happening. I love it here. I love New York too, but I, I, it, it's funny. I moved here from Miami and I remember saying to my husband, what kind of theater, what kind of culture is going to be here for me? And <laughs> You know, I could literally see a play every night. There's just uh, that much, <laughs> except for Monday nights. <laughs> right, right. Um, there's that much theater happening. So. Just wanted to ask, I guess, maybe, uh, you know, uh, what uh, what you're looking forward to in the coming, you know. I have a few Especially in the coming season. Yeah. T tell us about it. Yeah, um, and I, I made a list because I don't want to forget anybody. Um, right. We have the regional premiere of Fat Ham. I was dying to see Fat Ham on Broadway. I didn't get to see it there. Um, so Playmakers is doing it here, and, and they were very excited to announce that while it was still running on Broadway. Um, we're going to have the regional premiere of Chicken and Biscuits in March, so I'm very excited about that as well. Um, in May... So Becca Brunstetter, who was the book writer of The Notebook, as you know, she is also a University of North Carolina Chapel Hill alum. And so Playmakers commissioned her to write an original play called The Game, 
which happens to be opening in May, just a few months after the notebook opens. And I did um, attend a reading of that play last year, and it's pretty brilliant. So I'm very excited to see the full production of that. Um, and then we talked about before we went on the air, um, the biggest party, which happens not too far from here is the National Black Theater Festival, which will happen again in August. And if you haven't been, I highly recommend it. It's a fabulous place to see new work and just be in the room with other people who love theater and who love new work and um, new voices. That's what I love the most about it. It's new perspectives, new voices that we don't always see on stage. So I, I think it's a, a wonderful party, a wonderful time. Everyone should come to the National Black Theater Festival and then come to Raleigh and spend time with us here because we have a lot of theater. <laughs> made a, you made a great case, Lauren, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today to tell us about, about Raleigh Durham and uh, you know, obviously you pitch some stories, you know, we'd love to, we'd love to, to bring you into the American theater fold. If you can. I will, I will. And I'm just so grateful. Our, our friend Calandra is, is now working with the magazine. It's so exciting. Mm -hmm. So thank you for having me. It's a total pleasure. Total pleasure. It's great. It's great to meet you and we'll look for your coverage. I, I guess do a quick plug. It's beltlinetobroadway.org. Is that right? Beltline2Broadway.org, and we have a podcast called Beltline to Broadway. So tune in. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks so much, Lauren. Thank have a good you day. Both. Okay. Um, so I'm excited. That was a great conversation. I'm also excited to queue up. Uh, David Ajmi was not able to be here live, so I talked to him a few days ago. And as often, I get carried away with these conversations about something I love so much. And you'll find out as you hear both he and I, but especially him think of these characters in this play as real. So we talk about them like they're real. We talk about them like you all know who we're talking about. So I just want to set the stage really briefly. Stereophonic is set in a studio in Sausalito in which an unnamed band, a little like Fleetwood Mac, but not really Fleetwood Mac, is recording an album and having lots of problems with each other and some romances and drama. And it's a, it's a very sort of granular, you are there kind of thing. You're looking at the studio uh, and there's a, a glass partition where they're recording, but also out in the booth. And then you're in the studio with the engineers. I'll just tell you really quickly, if you hear somebody's talk about Peter, Peter and Diana are the sort of Buckingham Nicks, American singer-songwriter couple, um, who's sort of a central drama. But then there's Reg and Holly, who are the two Brits, uh, uh, kind of the McVees, you might say, uh, the John and Christine McVee. Of, and then Simon is the drummer, obviously the McFleetwood. But... I would steer you away from the Fleetwood Mac analogies because as you'll find out in this in this interview, it was a Led Zeppelin song that inspired uh, that inspired David. And then of course he spent many years on it and every bit of care that he's that he that he says he spent shows up on stage in a great way. So I can't wait to play this great interview with David and I uh, hope you enjoy it. Uh, I'll be back afterwards just to sign off, but uh, enjoy. I'm here with David Ajme, the playwright of Stereophonic. David, how are you doing today? I'm good. I wanted to start off with a little uh, audio sharing here. Uh, I'll start that and then we'll talk after this. Baby, baby, I'm gonna leave you. 
played that song, David. That was the song that directly inspired from reading about it. It's not just the the fact of the recording and the imagining the, the recording studio, but it was the, actually the, the emotional push-pull of that song that inspired your play. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I it's, you know, plays come from very weird places, yeah. and sometimes they're very concrete places, and sometimes they're abstract, weird intuitions. Mm -hmm. But this was a concrete thing. Like I was listening to the song. I was on an airplane and I was listening to the radio because what are you going to do? <laughs> Came on and I knew knew the song. My brother was a big Led Zeppelin fan and he was older than I was and he used to play it on his guitar in his room. You know, those those notes. So I knew the song, but I just, you know, those songs when you're a kid, you're like, oh yeah, it's boilerplate. It's like my background. It's yeah. wallpaper. But it, suddenly it got very foregrounded for me. And yeah, the emotions in that song, I mean, you just can't deny it's electrifying. Yeah. And <clears throat> I just started to visualize the studio session. I don't know why. I just, try, I was like, what was it like for this person to be going through this hmm. length of these vocals? And then I just sort of had the whole idea in like five seconds. Hmm. Yeah, just like, it, it, it's it's the... No, it wasn't just a technical thing, like how would he hit those notes and how all the sounds come in a certain, you know, the arrangement, but going through the emotions and putting them down on tape is like going through that process, I guess, is what you're talking about. Like, how how does someone do that and why and how, why, right? You pictured all that. Yes. And also, I mean, it was a bunch of layered things at once. It was the For idea sure. of video. It was someone laying down tracks. And then it was also the content of the song itself. Right. which is rife with these weird syncretisms and weird contradictions in the between the lyrics and the delivery. Sure. There was something, yeah, there was just so much emotional tension in the song that I just was drawn, I was drawn to that too, I think. But on an yeah. unconscious, like I wasn't aware of what I was drawn to, but I just knew I was so drawn really, to. 
you heard a play in that in that drama somehow. You heard the drama of that. I so I wondered from there. You say you initially had the play, but obviously it's been discussed many times. It's not. This is not Led Zeppelin. It's also not Fleetwood Mac, although it uses a template uh, with with married couples and, and British. You know, it, it basically has a template which is very identifiable in the era uh, as related to Fleetwood Mac. But how, how did it take shape? You know, in terms of what kind of band you wanted to create and the reference points that you drew on to sort of create this fake band? Well, when I started, I didn't, I mean, I, I did think of Fleetwood Mac very early on. Um, and I also, but I, I wanted to do a very sort of wide ranging research mm -hmm. on just bands of the era, analog recording, and just also the psychology of bands and, mm -hmm. and the mechanics the psychological mechanics of how bands function and because uh, I knew I wanted to write a lot about collaboration. And so I watched, you know, I started watching just a bunch of documentaries, which is why I think it started to take on the feel of documentary because I was, because how else would I learn about this? No one would let me into their sessions, you know? Right, and right. <laughs> so, so I watched some kind of monster. That was like the first one. And people okay. just kept recommending, Oh, have you seen this? Have you seen that? Um, and I would take notes, you know, like, like some of it is cribbed right from uh, the company documentary, Stephen Sondheim giving right. notes in the company documentary, um, because I don't know, like, I was like, what kind of things would people say to each other? Like, you know, I would just write that down, put more EQ on the amp. I just write that down. I don't know anything. I'm not a music person at all. I mean, right. I love music, but you're much more like fanatical. Like you really know your stuff. I don't know a lot. Right, right. I mean, I, like, I, I'm, I'm not. I, I know a little more probably, but I have, I, yeah, I'm not. But that. I feel like you're not. You're more than just a layperson, and I right, am sure, like sure. a very ardent, happy to listen to music layperson. Yeah. So I really had to. I really had to sort of just. I would just write down like anything that seems specific. Okay. So that's just the thing. Okay, this they say this, they say that, they do this, they do that. That's how I built it. Totally outside in. Huh. Huh. And and then I talk to engineers and and then I you know come up with scenarios and I just built it like in this very weird I mean that's my process anyway it's like a little of this a little of that okay a little dialogue a little research some right. scenarios and you know I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages that I cut because it was just a bunch of garbage but I needed to do that you know and I also thought oh I'm gonna make it super granular and nothing's gonna happen because they're gonna be in this space hanging out mm -hmm. um, and then of course you know it was boring so it was like what's the difference between nothing happening that's boring and nothing happening that's has tension and that's tied in some oblique way to an event that could make it dramatic so sure. it was just a lot of, it was a heuristic it was a lot of trial and error yeah I was I was curious about the research you answered all that I mean the I don't see this is this is my I don't even know I don't know how drummers do what they do so that whole scene about the drum key and the click the click track all that stuff is very funny to me because you would see drummers do that and I could tell, tell the audience I, did, I think you you chose well the moment the things they obsessed over and got you know what seems to us disproportionately uh, uh, obsessed over but like it's the kind of thing like uh, yeah I know that's I know that's what it's like I know that's what it can be like and we get just enough of that in the play where it doesn't go down a wormhole for an hour <laughs> of, uh, and, and then the, the way time passes in the play is very interesting to me. Uh, the, the time between, between uh, scenes, but also just within the, within the scenes. Um, I mean, that it seems like I, that I was going to, the process of realizing this whole play though, it's one thing to, 
to sort of dream of a play and write a play about, about a band that gets up and sings and plays and makes music in real time before us. But the process of realizing that had to have been, I mean, there's a reason this play took, how, how long did it take, 10 years, some people say? Well, it didn't take 10 years. I mean, I wrote okay. the bulk of it in about five years. Okay, okay. It was like end of 2014 was when I really started to get serious. I had notes, yeah. but that's when I was sat down. I'm like, I'm doing this. And then I did a bunch of workshops um, and I developed those, the play with it, with those workshops. And, and we, and I feel like I was ready to go around the middle of 2019. Okay. We were ready to go and we were going to go. Yeah. And then it happened. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and did you use that period of life folks did to sort of just refine and fine tune and, or you just put this aside for a while? Um, after, after COVID? Yeah, during COVID, yeah. I mean, during COVID, no. I knew it was really done. I mean, okay, okay. I had little tiny things to do, but it was, I felt, I had gotten to the place in 2019, we did a workshop and I was trying to like get it even better. And I was like, and I started getting worse. And okay. I know when you that tell. happened, stop. Yeah, I just was like, I have to stop. So, but I mean, I wonder, so you feel like the play was done, but then the, again, the realization of it, the casting, the music part of it, all, all that just seems like, you know, this is, as you've talked about in other interviews, this is not how a musical is typically made. Uh, usually the songs are written, <laughs> you know, as part of the process. And so I just wondered about, about that part of it. I mean, it obviously took the scale of it, the scale and detail are more like what you would, would assume would be in a film, like not a documentary, like a, like a, 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 a not a fake, fake documentary is the wrong word, but just sort of like a behind the scenes band, band movie. Those are, those are, they take considerable uh, or or even just filming a musical i guess is what i would say is also you've got to involve music and the creation of that can you talk a little bit about surmounting that scale did you did getting getting producers or, or or in this case playwrights rising on board and and daniel and will and the other folks who helped daniel Hawkins, will butler who helped you realize this um process so your question is like how did i get them on board yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, in other words, you knew that you couldn't just send this play in and do it in the usual. Right. Not that, not that there's any one way you, you you get a theater to do a play, but this one has special requirements. And you knew you'd, yeah. you knew you'd need other team members, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just, I you know, when I started this play, I was kind of sick of writing plays, and I was burned out by the whole theater apparatus. I was just sick of it. And so I, but I had a commission to do it, and I thought, okay, well, I'll do it but I have to find a way to do this that's going to make, like force me to do it. Okay. And I want to build infrastructure around myself. So I asked Daniel Auken to direct it before I wrote it. I just said, I'm going to write about a band making a record. Okay. And then, and then I found Will and I said, hey, would you work with me on this? He said, okay. I mean, it was very weird. Everyone, David Zinn said, okay. Yeah, Justin Craig. Yeah, yeah, the set designer and the music uh, director, Justin Craig, who had done Hedwig. At that time it was just done it. Yeah. Um, and um, and I built this like group of people with Daniel um, around me who would just come to these weird workshops. I mean, it was like really long and bloated and it didn't have any shape and they'd come out, oh, good for you. You know, and then they'd leave. And I, I'd be like, I know I could make this into something. Like I know what it could be and I just have to keep chipping away at it. And so, um, and eventually, you know, it found its shape. And in 2019, we did a two week workshop and that was the first, and that was when Will had had been working on the music for I think a couple of years by that point. Okay. And Will 
we and we had gone back and forth together. Like I I would say I want a song here, then I want a new arrangement here, and then I want it to come back at the end. Okay. So that's okay. This song, I want this, this, and this. So we would yeah. think about how many songs we needed, how many songs we could really fit. I knew it wasn't going to be about like presenting these songs like a musical. Like here's a new song, everybody, let's dance. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. That. I wanted it to be more um un unexpected. Like you don't know what you're gonna get. Maybe you'll right. get part of it. Maybe you'll get a clip. Maybe you'll get nothing. Yeah. So we went back and forth in terms of like what the songs needed to feel like, how they would feel in context, mm -hmm. what what I wanted them to feel like, what I wanted the feeling tone to be, and the emotional okay. feeling of the songs in the context of the play. Okay. And so we talked a lot about that, and he would go back and forth. And he, God bless him, Will Butler went through many iterations. He's very collaborative. He did get testy with me at times, but I, yeah, you know, he, in the end, it was a very good collaboration yeah. and he's fun. So that was great. And, um, and then in 2019, we did this workshop and we put it all together for the very first time. And Justin Craig was there and we had actors playing instruments and we were like, oh my God, this works. Like it was the first time we realized like this actually really works. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So your faith was just fine. I mean, uh, I guess it probably just in just in the same way you 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 drew on Led Zeppelin's inspiration. Fleetwood Mac was in the mix there, and other bands. You probably didn't. I mean, I don't know. Did did you? You said you gave Will ideas of a feel of a song. We didn't say it was forbidden to go like a song like this. Do a song like Rihanna. Do a song like you know. Or wasn't so much that. I mean, obviously. It, this is all the reference points at our fingertips, you know. It's, no, it's, I did give him, I did sometimes, I would give him things that say, like, if it's not going to block you, I want to give you, like, I remember giving okay. him Elton John's Someone Saved My Life Tonight. Okay. And I remember giving him, there weren't Fleetwood Mac songs, so I didn't want to make a Fleetwood Mac musical. Right, right, right. But yeah, there, yeah. Were, there were songs with, with emotional um, things in it that I wanted him. And Will's more, like, cerebral and, like, punk, and he, like, to get him to come to go to that place is, you know, it's not his natural. He can do it. Yeah, but you have to yeah. like you, to get him into a vulnerable place in the music. You know, it was a, was a little bit of a thing. So, I just wanted to sort of open those doors. And right. then he so, did, you know, it was more about the feeling of the music you wanted to evoke, and then then like I want a guitar sound like this record, and there's you know it wasn't like that kind of a musical. I mean, no. I, I forget the name of the. What's what's the the one that you hear the most of with that amazing guitar riff in the show? I forget the name of it. Uh, is it Masquerade? Masquerade is that it? Is it Masquerade? Yeah. That's the one that you hear at the end of the act. Yeah, yeah, and that one is sort of is sort of thematic. You hear a lot of it. It sounds amazing, and it does really sound in the pocket of what might, might have been playing on the radio mm -hmm. in the late in the late seventies. And it isn't a sort of I don't you know, Mac is not the the best reference point for it. It's more just I don't know, Fog Hat or I don't know, I don't. I remember these bands. I'm about the same age as you, so it's like that was my background music too. I sort of mm -hmm. took it for granted, and it's, mm -hmm. but it's still, it's still. I realized so much music I like is either was made in the '70s or sounds like it was made in the '70s. That feels mm -hmm. like because it's just my my the white noise in my in the background of my life, you know. So yeah, how that sort of loops back around when you hit middle age, and you're like, oh, I mean, I think this, this every generation is like, wait a minute. You know, and you get this kind of weird nostalgia for this thing that's imprinted on you in this very strange way that you weren't really fully aware of. But yeah. it so many bizarre associations that I have 
to certain songs like some of them are really bad songs yeah but okay. i still have this, I, I still listen to them when i wrote this play because it got me into a certain emotional place i wondered about um you know i think you've talked about uh, other backstage musicals and films uh that that are reference point chorus line and i don't know if star born's in the mixer but like i feel like the the danger with a piece like this is obviously avoid, avoiding cliches, right? Or, or the danger is not avoiding, the danger is running into cliches about Svengali relationships and, and showbiz. I just want to, I want to do this on my own. And th those kind of scenes we've seen a million times. I feel like they they hover over this play in a way, but in a way that feels authentic to the characters. I feel like the characters themselves, maybe unconsciously, are trying to avoid those cliches too. It's like they're trying to avoid being the victim, being the, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I, I I felt like there'd be scenes that would start like okay this is the scene where but they wouldn't go where you would think they go I mean I just I'm 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 just not even a question here this is more of a comment than a question just a compliment on how you it seems like that's part of your curation process as well I, I imagine there might have been scenes where like we're gonna have the big fight that you've seen in every you know behind the music special right or 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 the, or the I never did it. No, I never did those. Okay. okay. No, and I think that you know, for me, I mean, well, I have my thought about cliches that I just embrace yeah. cliches because I think it's very dangerous as a writer if you are saying, "Oh, I can't write a cliche," then you can't. A lot of cliches are just bad representations of true yeah, okay. things. That's right. Okay. So it's really about being specific. Mm -hmm. And so, my whole thing was, I'll get blocked if I say I can't be, be cliche. Because there's so many archetypal things that I'm drawing from. That's right. But I never wanted to write those scenes because I thought they were. I just thought I'm creating these characters in my head. Yeah. And I don't want them to feel like blown out. I didn't want it to feel like a spinal tap. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't want to feel like these. But spinal tap is like, we laugh at spinal tap because it's a, just a torqued version of what we think rock bands are like. Right. And I thought, okay, I don't want it. I just wanted to feel really specific, and I wanted to feel like people that I know, kind mm -hmm. of that I could yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, because I think people just have this idea that people in rock bands are these other kinds of people, right? Like they're like, and they're not. They still mm -hmm. have to do their laundry. They still have to get takeout. They still have to like pick their nose. It's yeah. it's like, and so I just thought if I can just if they feel truthful to me, then that's my metric. And right, that's okay. what I'm going with. Yeah. And so then I never ended up writing these other scenes because I just, I, it never attracted me. You know what I mean? I got you. I got you. It's just, so the, the, that excess that you cut, it sounds like it wasn't, it wasn't that you were cutting like archetypal cliche scenes. It was more you're cutting just fat where people were talking for a long time and doing it. It's kind of like, yeah, palaver. Because I just wanted there to be this palaver all over the yeah. place right you know because right. i was really and they really and that's how i got to know the characters when they talked about putting on makeup or they talked about steaming for six hours or like they talked about the houseboat scene which is the great scene i think i love it but that's it went great. initially it was over 30 pages i mean it was over literally it went on and on and on and it was really that was actually cliche because it was like these two these people getting stoned scene okay, you know good. we're getting stoned and i really indulged it and then i was like absolutely not and, so then I, <laughs> and it was still really fun to do and will brill was in it from he's in workshops of it 
from back in 2015 or something. And we just laughed and laughed and laughed. And I was like, oh my God, this is so much fun. And then when I looked at it in the context of the play, I was like, no, I can't do this. Right. I just to give uh, folks haven't seen it, Reg, who's the bassist, and he's in some ways most damaged, but also he ends up not being anyway. He 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 has a scene where he's like pulled up in a blanket. He's talking about the houseboats outside Sausalito and their war with the hill people. And it, it goes on almost too long. And then it, he has that, that devastating line about I want to live in art. I think, you know, it's, it's almost a throwaway, but it really, as I think Todd London in his essay talks about, really stops the play. Like, whoa, okay, that's that's an amazing, amazing thought, right? That it that it that it lands at, right? Right. I want to live in art. Um so yeah, that that's a great, a great, a great detail. Um, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, David's inset reminded me a little bit of the flick, um, and 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 I wondered if if uh, which he also did, where we're looking at a theater, is it the same? Because maybe it's the same theater, and I feel like we're also watching the way Grover and Charlie are watching. So we're like an audience, and they're an audience in front of us, mm-hmm. and also the level of observational detail, and then those offstage conversations where crucial stuff's happening and we can almost hear it. And so it reminded me a little bit of the projection scene in, um, in, in the flick. I don't know, you've talked a little bit about how hyper-realism has not been the style you've done before, but this was something that you felt attracted to. I wondered if, if, if there are reference points there in, in writers like Annie Baker and other ones like that. Annie wasn't a reference point for this one. I love her writing. I absolutely love her writing, Um, especially John. I mean, that's the play, like, I wish I had written more more so than Flick. Yeah. I see the affinity there. Yeah. yeah, To me, it was more about watching those documentaries Mm -hmm. and looking at 1970s, like Bob Fosse, um, the way he sometimes dealt with sound and image and the, the, like just disjuncts there and um okay yeah uh yeah alan packler films i mean i watched don't look now obviously which made its way into the play in one scene they have a conversation about that movie um but a film was really i guess more of an influence so maybe that's the overlap with the flick because there is like a filmic intertextual thing going on a little bit yeah, I mean, I your reference points are probably better on that than Altman is the person I thought of, but there's obviously a lot of other folks who wrote. Oh, Nashville is a huge influence yeah. on this. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So I've asked you the, the question, musicians, you get asked like your influences. So I've got, <laughs> what are your influences, David? Uh, um, oh, yeah, I was going to ask about, you know, the you talked about the, the choosing what to include and in all the stuff that you left out. I'm just intrigued by the, off stage, like the, I'm just picturing the house where they live because they talk about the house where they, they're like all bunking at some house in Sausalito. That sounds that sounds like that's a whole other play, right? Uh, I have so many notes about. There's also all the tech people, but I ha- I know who they oh. are. A very long. I have them, but I didn't put them in the play. I just have all my notes about who they are, where they live, where Grover lives, because I needed to have it mapped out in my head. Mm-hmm. So that I, if I, in case I needed it, I got very, very obsessive about this particular play. And I sort of know way too much about the characters. Like at one point, Daniel staged one of the scenes where Diana brings Peter a song finally, because she's been like holding out. She does, she gets too anxious to bring in a song. She finally brings one in. And then he had her bring it in a, on a pad. And I was mortified because I just knew 
this character would never write in a pad. She writes on napkins and from the diner, paper napkins, and on pieces of paper that she just finds. She's floppy. And I got really mad. And I was like, why would you give, give her a pad? And he was like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I'm just, we can switch, swap it out. I, I just thought she would have a pad, but I thought, like, I got kind of offended because because I just felt, I just knew the character so well, and I thought he would know that about her. He, I just assumed he would know it. <laughs> but that's that, that obsessive detail does come out in the play in the best way, not in a way that feels, I feel like it's clear that the attention was paid, and obviously not just by you, but by all the people you work with. I, I did, it doesn't make me think because it plays so much about community and collaboration. You've worked in the theater a long time. The process of making this play, did it start to feel like you were in a band with these guys and it was like, yes. you're being like, you're being like Peter, you're controlling them, you know, like that yes. kind of thing? Well, they all call me Peter, but <laughs> I'm not, I'm not Peter, but yeah. I, I was sort of the one who was like, it's not good enough. It's not good enough, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, I mean, I, I'm I'm not tone deaf the way Peter is. Peter can be a little bit. He just doesn't think about how his words are gonna. He just has, he's just driving things, you know. Right. Right. I'm a little bit more nuanced, and I hope like to think <laughs> in my in my constructive criticisms. But sure. um, but yeah, we became. I mean, it really is so dumb. But like, I feel like they are my family, and I feel like. Will, especially Will, Justin, Ryan Rummery, and Daniel and I mm -hmm. just became very close doing this. Like, I love these people so much. They're so good. They're such good collaborators and they're so nice and they don't have egos. Right. And right. I actually don't have an ego either. I feel like I'm just, we're all, we were all just about like getting it right. Yeah. Yeah. We drive ourselves crazy to right. get it right. And so there was something very beautiful about that, that we were all just, so dedicated and knew that it was a special play. Like I knew for me, it was a very special play and everyone seemed to feel that way. So I don't know, it was an incredible experience for me making it. I was really worried. I said to Daniel, cause usually my plays, the themes get re recapitulated in the process and I'm going, oh my God, this, we're gonna all end up at each other's throats or sleeping with each other. <laughs> and, I, and I said to Daniel, like, I really don't want us to get into a fight. Like I'm nervous. This was like a few months before we started rehearsal because we had been prepping for this for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Daniel was like, and he's just the greatest guy. And he was like, you know, if we get into a fight, we'll just talk about it and then we'll just deal with it. Right, right. Like, okay. You know, and, and that's what we did. Right, right. You know? And like when we were, when I, like I was mad at Daniel, I just sit him down and say, I'm mad at you. And he'd say, <laughs> I know. <laughs> So it seems like the collaboration mirrored some of the stuff that goes on with bands, but you were a more self-aware and enlightened band than, than the one we depicted in this play. <laughs> we were more civilized, I think, than the people on the play. Like, we weren't as messed up. Maybe we are deep down, but like we were able to like table our issues and traumas so that we could actually have a functional collaboration together. Right, and there's maybe less cocaine too, so. Yeah, no, I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I, part of what you just mentioned, I was going to ask a question of where you are, where you are in the play. Like, you sound like we talked about how a little bit of Peter is in you. Peter is, of course, the sort of domineering songwriter who's sort of the, the, the auteur or the wannabe auteur of this band who, who makes them all sit there. Um, uh, 
the moment I just want to talk the moment that 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 hit me as a, one of the big pivots of the play, and I was just it was such a subtle moment to capture, and yet it rippled out through the whole play was when they discovered that when Simon tells them that the budget's been tripled, it's like the biggest disaster. Yeah, and yet that would be good news to anybody, but we've been with them just long enough to know that that is going to be a nightmare. That the more money is going to mean more time. More and now Grover, the engineer, feels it as as pressure. Like it now, this pressure is raised. But I feel like everybody else feels like, oh my God, we're not going to be done with this. <laughs> uh, you know, in the this is not going to this is not one and done. This is like we're going to this is going to have to make a masterpiece if we're going to get that much more money. So I I I again the, the way that that moment was handled, I just uh, it's like this weird pyrrhic victory that comes really early in the play. They're like, oh yeah, we're such a success, and now we have to. <laughs> live with it for the rest of the play, you know? Um, uh, no, but I was getting to the question of, of where you are in this. Like, I was thinking about your amazing memoir, Lot Six. Love that, love that book. Um, there's a story in that that haunts me, and it's the one where you live with a couple in LA, um, and you're really close to them, and you sort of see their their relationship close, and you're sort of part of it, and then all of a sudden you're not. Like, as I, I don't remember all the details, I just remember, both resonating with that, that feels like chapters of my life that I can that I tried to block out. Like I was in this intense relationship with these people, and then it was over. And I feel like some of that, this play kept reminding me of that in a way. Even though the 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 the, the, the breaches that happen aren't as dramatic, I feel like there's a sort of and maybe maybe what I'm thinking is I feel like you had that observational detail about all these couples and all these relationships. Does, does that does that does that resonate with you? I don't know. Do you remember about, can you tell me about that couple again? I forget the details. I call them Bob and Hillary. I, mean, I don't know, I shouldn't say their real names, but it was Bob and Hillary. And um, yeah, they were just a couple that I met in, um, when I was at USC, this was a long time ago, yeah. I was in film and, um, and, you know, we became pals and then they said, we're moving off campus. Do you want to live with us? And I thought, oh, right. great. And I just started spending all my time with Bob and Hillary. Um, and but Bob started to get jealous because he thought that I was straight because I pretended to be straight at the time and I was in the closet and he thought that I was um, getting it on with Hillary, but we were just friends. Yeah. And so that created this crazy and that just led to this wild, um, you know, breakup. Yeah. And yeah. it was tra traumatic. I think you're right that, you know, this play is deal. This play is so much about. Atta like attachment and like this kind of like either erotic attachment or the attachment between friends and there's some kind of relationship between that and creativity mm. and like I'm not a person that wants to be in a relationship and then make things with my partner like let's go make a play now like that would be nightmare to me but a lot of people are really into that yeah <laughs> and there's something because I feel like this like let's all be let's be in every little crevice of each other's lives and I am aware of how perilous that could be and how frightening that is. Like, I don't like, I don't want to mix and match in that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's just something in this play about, I wanted to really like write a play about an echo chamber of breaking up mm. and um, people who live with breaking up forever. And there's like weird half-life of mm. a breakup. In this half life of a relationship that like never quite ends. Yeah, and yeah. something about you know I probably have an attachment disorder, 
And so I'm sort of like working through my disorder. Mm. Uh, but, um, you know, when friends leave, when you really close friends break up with you or lovers break up with you, it's, I have a really hard time with it. I don't do well with it. And it can haunt me forever and ever and ever. Mm. And so I think I just wanted to sort of like soak in that a little bit in this play. And maybe that's why the Fleetwood Mac template became the one that took most hold structurally. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, well, what better metaphor for that sort of lingering, never quite broken up feeling than a band? Because even after you leave the band, you're still a Beatle. You're still, a, you know, it's, there's this the music is still there. You're still yeah. related to these people like family in a weird way. They're still always going to be your bandmate you know I, I think that I think that may be why why we're so invested in this play about a fictional band I mean I wonder if at some point people are like why can't this be about an actual why you why do we care about this fictional band what you know I think of Velvet Goldmine or Five Heartbeats there's some great movies about fictional bands but um uh I think that what you're talking about the the, the drama that you that that they act out is the reason why it's why it's fascinating. I, I, and what you're saying, um, you get, you, I think you said in an essay on Playwrights Horizons website that one of the questions of play was why, why are we drawn to the things that destroy us? And I wonder, did this help, this play help you answer that question, David? No. No. <laughs> Because I, yeah, the, the the second the second thing you said after that was and why did why is it the things that seem destructive also create can somehow create great art right it's really I mean these are it's basically like why are my obsessions my obsessions and why do you yeah. fall of with the people you fall in love with right and why are you drawn to make the art you make and why are you drawn to go down these rabbit holes for ten years yeah. with these projects. And it's it's very like, you know, it's like, what's that crazy, um, what's the Werner Herzog film where they just, where they take the, you know, the, this- Geraldo? Yeah, Geraldo. Yeah. It's sort of like, it is kind of like, I am interested in obsession. I think I write from a place of obsession and I don't, like I tell my students, like don't get ideas for plays, write from a place of obsession that transcends I, the idea and then find it in the execution. Right. Okay. And so, um, but you know, when you go to a place of obsession, it's dangerous and you can't understand the obsession and you spend the writing process trying to unpack this obsession, which you usually can't fully unpack. So, so yeah, I can't answer. I don't know. <laughs> it's sort of like at the very kernel of the human mystery, the mystery of being a person, like the sphinx like riddle of being a yeah. person right i mean one way you answer that question is by making the art because yeah you know it can't be something you can't be whittled down to a to an answer anyway but yeah the answer your your art is the answer to the question of why we keep making it um i think is it uh the, the guy who plays uh uh peter joe is it joe Tom um, Pasinka. Uh, Pasinka, yeah. He, 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 I think he's found someone on Twitter that there's going to be a cast album. Is that is that true? Do you know? Yeah, yeah there will. <laughs> because I, it is the kind of thing where we only hear analyzing snippets of the songs, but of course we want to, I want to hear Masquerade again. 
know, but I think Will is like intimidated because he's yeah. like, no, it sounds better as a snippet. And I'm like, I know, but you can't have an album with snippets. He, he, we're going to have to figure it out. I, yeah. we, my idea is that we do a concept album where we, we, we release the album that they release, but then we have the bonus tracks because they cut, they cut a lot of songs that we hear in the play. Like yeah, they're not yeah. a album, but we have them as bonus tracks. That's my big idea. I think that that's what we should do, but it's not my album. So Will has to figure it out. Yeah. What, what would be your role on it as a playwright? You'd be the producer, right? Or no? No. I mean, no. I think it's like, I have to have some role in it. I mean, I have to have some role, but I can't tell Will what to do. I mean, it's real. It's Will's music. Yeah, of course, of course. But yeah. it's also representative of something collaborative. So I don't know. We have to figure it out, though. I guess the other weird question, the play's been extended now through December 17th, so if you don't have a ticket, you should probably get one, folks out there. Uh, I know that it was there were talks a couple of years ago about a, about a, a run at another place, another big place. And I wonder if, if there's a plans for the future of the show. Do you, can you talk about that? Or is that even in your mind at all? Well, it's on my mind, but we haven't started having the talks yet. People are still coming to see it. And um, we've have offers for things, but it will have to be, I mean, the play is so um, intimate mm -hmm. that I don't necessarily want to just transfer it to a broad, big Broadway house. I have to make sure that it feels right to me. And and that it's the right producers and stuff like that. And but there are also people in London who are interested. So we just have to kind of we'll be, we're just gonna be very careful about how we do it so that we don't do it the wrong way. Of course, of course. Yeah, I know it's it's an important thing conversation. It's always the inevitable trade question. Of course, I mean, you know this, David. You're in the theater. The theater is about now, it's about what's on stage right now. It's not necessarily about making it something more in the future, right? But of course that's, you'll have to, you'll have to eat. <laughs> and also the, the play deserves, a, you know, to be seen by a lot of folks. So, um, and seen by more than can fit it even to the, the Playwrights Horizons run through December. Um, I, I can't say enough how much I love the play. And uh, I think, I don't know if you saw Morgan Genesis comment that she said something like, it felt more like, I remember it more as an experience I had than a play I saw, which I think really, if that was your mission, a mission accomplished, you know? Um, I mean, it makes me feel great. It, so many people have said, like, I wish I just had a blanket and we could just, it could have just kept going all night and I would just fall asleep in the theater. <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, I feel like people love to be with these characters, but see, I love to be with them too, but I don't know if other people are going to love them. Yeah, I yeah. feel so close to these characters that it's weird. It's, yeah. cr it's crazy. It's creepy. Like, I feel like I know them so well that I'll never not know them. Like, I'll always be able to just access them in my my mind because they're so yeah. real. It's bizarre. But is that true of all your plays, David? Or is no. this one uniquely that way? No, because my other plays are more abstracted. I mean, I never tried to write three-dimensional characters before because I, I just wasn't interested. Like, I, okay. I saw them more as, like, an expressionist and okay. more like... Wow. And... and like not trying to do it. I did, I was like, oh no, like I'm more, like I'm like a German playwright. And that's right. how I saw myself, like more European or something. Right. And then and then I, and then when I did 3C, I felt like I can't go any further with this. It's crazy. I either need to start my own school to teach actors how to do this. Okay. Or I need to find a new way of working and I need to try something else. And I want to experiment. 
you know? And so I thought, well, this is an experiment for me, like writing three-dimensional characters. I've never done it. And I started doing it with my book. Right, right. And I did it with this plan, which I wrote them concurrently. And okay. so, so it was like, okay, well, if I'm going to do that, I want to really do it. And so then that's when I started becoming obsessive and detailed. Because I thought, well, no one knows that I can do this, but I can do it. And I'm going to do it really well. So I'm going to like... I'm going to know these characters better than anyone has ever known anyone. Like I'm going to really burrow in and see how far I can take this. And then I became as usual, obsessive and crazy and went down a million rabbit holes with my characters. But now I feel like I'm, yeah, I feel like I have this strange, they are so real to me. It it brings me to tears when I talk about them sometimes. Yeah, well, I I feel like that all you feel all that in the play. I think the, the heart of the play, of course, is that it that it it does end at some point, and that that you you have at some point the curation is part of the art as well. It's not just putting people in front of us. I mean, you've somehow digested their reality and made it into a beautiful piece of art. So, David, thank you so much for taking the time today, and thank you for your play. Oh my gosh, thank you. Well, that was my conversation with David Ajme. It was fun to hear that back. Um, this has been another edition of Off Script, American Theater's podcast. To support our work, please uh, go to americantheater.org slash join to subscribe. Read us online. Off Script is produced by Allie Pearson. Thanks, Allie, for Rob Weiner-Kent and J.R. Pierce. I'm signing off. Take care.